Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This is a two-part series that Sean Hackett and I did where we interviewed Dr. Valentina Zarkova, and for those of you that don't know who Dr. Zarkova is, she is a brilliant mathematician, astrophysicist. Um, she has a PhD in applied mathematics and, and solar theory. Uh, she's been studying the sun and the effects that the sun has on the on the solar system as well as Earth for the better part of 40 years. Um, she has a very, very distinct background, and, and she has uh, several peer-reviewed periodicals, papers, and been published many times in, in various um, industry magazines and articles and periodicals and those kind of things. So Dr. Zokova was kind enough to come on with Sean and I and talk about what's going on with the grand solar minimums uh, that we've that Sean and I have been talking about in the podcast here um, over since about 2018 and, and leading up to this 21-22 time frame where, we, where we're starting to head into now. She lays it out real nice. And, and just shows a lot of great stuff. So there, this was also videoed. So if you go over to my YouTube channel at Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel, you can see the video as well and and all of the information that she has there as well. So hope you guys enjoy this. Um, Sean and I kind of lay out what's going on in, in each one of these uh, each one of these podcasts. So again, a great honor to have Dr. Vasarkov on here. And um, again, people talk about following the science. Well, here you go. Doesn't get more scientific than this. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This is a special edition that Sean Hackett and I did together, where we interviewed Dr. Valentina Zarkova. And Dr. Zarkova is one of the leading researchers in in the field of grand solar minimums, solar activity. She's got, as you heard earlier, she's got a laundry list of of degrees that that stack up to make her very very much a uh, a well re- well rounded and well renowned uh, scientific author out there that's got a lot of great information about stuff. So we've got Sean Hackett here with me, and he he and I both uh, interviewed Dr. Zarkova, and this is a two part uh, program that we put together here. And um, I think all together we have about 120 minutes or so worth of worth of information. So Sean, as you, what's the best way that you would describe this part one here of uh, Dr. Zarkova's interview? Um, I think part one, what she was trying to convey, and I think what we were trying to convey is, is why does the sun do what it does? How do we measure it? And how can we use modern 
day techniques and mathematics to project forward what solar activity will look like. And so it's really kind of an education on, on the sun and the mechanisms behind it, how we know what it's doing and how we can project what it will do. Um, and so that, that's really the takeaway from this first, uh, you know, this first part is kind of a, you know, you know really getting under, an understanding of how the sun operates, what is a solar cycle, that sort of thing. So that when we talk about part two, people will have a, a framework from, to go by. So, yeah. And the nice thing about this stuff is that, this is not some someone's opinion or or whatever. This is all scientific data. That's peer reviewed data. That's all um, in several scientific journals. That that's easy to find. That is all very peer reviewed and by um, by others that are that are in the astrophysics field. Right. So this isn't something that just some person made up. And it is what it is. So I'm looking forward to this part one. I think um, I sat through it and I. I learned a lot from this just because the fact of I have a very, 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 very high level understanding of what's going on. Um, had no, I, I don't have any of the technical backing to, to really, uh, you know, get the good feel for this, but Sean does. And Sean understand quite a bit what's going on there. And you learned quite a bit from it as well. Didn't you, Sean? I really did. I mean, to, to see it through the mind of a, of a physicist, you know, and, and at the level she understands it, you know, the level of understanding that I got from it was just tremendous. I mean, it was a really, I found it extremely helpful, informative, and I walked away knowing, you know, a lot more about what's really going on than I thought I did. So it's, I hope your listeners, um, you know, feel the same way when they watch part one. Right on. Well, Sean, I'm looking forward to this and uh, we will uh, let part one roll and uh, we'll see you again in part two. Sounds good. Thanks, Casey. This is um, this is truly one of those opportunities in life that come along, and um, you don't necessarily get to have them that often. And I'm lucky to have one of the foremost researchers as far as um, sun cycles and those kind of things take place in in here with us today. And and before I introduce her, I want to introduce Sean Hackett, which everyone knows Sean Hackett listens to the podcast. He's on every week and we talk about what's going on in the commodity market. And he was the first person to bring this idea of the uh of grand solar minimums and, and how they affect the earth and what we're running into here in twenty one and twenty two and what that might look like. So Sean, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm I'm honored. I'm really looking forward to the show. Yep, me so. too. So the guest of honor, Dr. Valentina Zarkova is is my guest here with, with Sean Hackett and myself. And I reached out to Dr. Zarkova to bring her on to kind of give us a uh, good understanding of what's going on here. And um, before the podcast came on, you, you heard what her what her background was and what that looked like. And, and as you can see, she's very well-versed in all levels of physics and mathematics. So Dr. Zarkova, thank you for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure to speak with you and um, to answer your questions and educate the people if they're interested in the solar activity, its effect on the life on Earth. Yeah, I think there's plenty of people interested in that, especially with the folks that we're talking with here. So, um, Dr. Zakova, when did you first start researching this, this subject matter? Mm -hmm. uh, when I was at the university at the age, I think, 19... Uh, it was uh, interesting. I was learning applied mathematics, and we had part of this course was um, uh, astronomy. 
and they wanted us to do a kind of um, um, labs and observations. And many observations were with the stars. You need to go at night and observe the stars. And I discovered that after 2 a.m., I stopped being a human being. I'm getting asleep around the telescope. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, I decided if I need to do any astrophysics, it has to be the day star. It has to be the sun. <laughs> it was literally my personal yeah. properties did not allow me to, to view. Right but on. nonetheless, it helped. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I did my first um, master degree in some actual statistical analysis. Zorkova, could you give us just a, like a brief definition of what a solar minimum is and a grand solar minimum? What's the difference between the two? Okay, let's first um, remember that the solar activity was is defined still by number of sunspots which appear on the solar surface. And here I present these, um, they were discovered ages ago, uh, first after invented telescope observed in 1609 on the sun, but also sunspots were observed uh, visually on the disc. When you project the solar disc on the wall and put white paper, you see these dark spots and people put handwriting drawings and calculated them. So these are sunspots, dark spots on the sun. And it turned out that when you look at the sunspot, they do not appear randomly. They appear actually pretty regular with the period about 11 years. So they keep appearing somewhere in the uh, plus minus 30 degree of the solar, from the solar equator and slowly moves during the solar cycle towards the equator. So basically what you see from, this is the result of 400 years of sunspot observations, the blue things here, this are 11 year cycle, average number of sunspots, which people observe. So you can see that every 11 years cycle goes from minimum to maximum, minimum, maximum. And this lasts until 1600, minimum, maximum. And you, from that, everyone can see that some cycles have larger number of sunspots on the solar disk, which are called modern maximum, it was somewhere in 1960, 1980. In some times, this solar maximum uh, number of much lower, twice or more. Here, as you see in about 1800, it was Dalton minimum, but the number of sunspots was about not exceeding 50, even in, during the maximum. And when you look backwards up to the mountain minimum, they went for about 60 years from 1645 to 1715, literally there were no sunspots or little, very little sunspot. And this is what Mount call Mount the Minimum, and this is what we call Grand Solar Minimum. But at that time, we didn't know how often this Grand Solar Minimum occurs, but from the comparison, you see that. So these are 11-year cycles, 
the number of sunspots increasing during the maximum, decreasing during minimum, then sun recuperates and starts the new cycle and every 11 years it changes. So what is the solar activity? If you, we look at the sun, what is happening at the bottom is minimum of solar activity. So basically you don't have sunspots and we don't have coronal mass ejection, don't have any activity on the sun. The magnetic field of the sun is very straightforward and there's no activity in the solar atmosphere. The further you move in time, this is the cycle 23, 96 was minimal, 96, 97. The further you move to the maximum, which was 2000 Y, one, you see that the solar atmosphere become burning. It is like a fire. Yeah, you see no, any atmosphere, no any emission. And look at this 2001, it has a huge, huge number of explosion of everything. This called solar activity increased, and almost everything which is increased on the sun is emitted into the interplanetary space and comes to all the planets, including the Earth. So all these particles, all this energy, all these waves, they're all coming towards us and disrupt our geomagnetic field and cause auroras and different kind of um, disruptions on the Earth. So this is what... Um, basically what is the solar activity and why the sunspot cycle is pretty important because we know that now we are the minimum of our cycle 25, so we're somewhere here, and the next five years we will be moving to its maximum. So the solar activity starts increasing, but before that we had 282 days without sunspot at all, which marked that the uh, minimum between cycle 24 and 25 was very long. Normally it takes uh, a few months, maximum year, but it was very long, um, very long uh, minimum, which um, shown that there's no any activity, no sunspots, literally. Sun was spotless, it was ideal sun, orange and beautiful. So this is the Solar activity index, which shown you in these average sunspot numbers, and this is the description of the solar activity through average sunspot number every month. They produce it and they cover in every 11 years. Sometimes cycles last 10 years, sometimes 12 years, in average 11 years. On the top, the location of sunspots on the um, solar surface. So they start somewhere between plus minus 30 degrees northern hemisphere southern. This is beginning of cycle. And then they slowly migrate toward the end of the cycle, slowly migrate to the equator and then disappear or move to another cycle starts again. So Dr. Sarkova? Yes. Doctor, why does this happen? Why is the sun, why does the sun just just always putting out the same amount of, why does it fluctuate? What's, what's, you know, it, it, what's the basis behind why the That's sun does question. this? Yeah. This question is related to the magnetic field of the sun and so-called electromagnetic dynamo. So it turned out that the sunspots are not simply dark spots. They are uh, foot points of the magnetic loops shown in here in this bit which are embedded into the 
cellular surface. So the loops are embedded, and when they appear, the roots looked as sunspots, and the loops are then produce you uh, flares and all these brightenings which we see during the maximum. So why it is happening? This is, let me go through that. Here is action of electromagnetic dynamo. So the electromotive force at the bottom of Tucker Klein, it converts magnetic flux of uh, magnetic loops into the magnetic field of the whole sun and vice versa. So using the magnetic field of the sun, this electromagnetic force creates magnetic loops at the bottom of Tucker um, line uh, or the bottom convective zone of the sun. And these loops, they, they are created during the minimum of solar activity. And then over the five, six years, these loops are traveling through the solar interior and appear on the solar surface at these loops, as I shown in the previous slide. But because the sun rotates, so the magnetic field of the sun is poloidal field. So from poloidal field, they create magnetic loops, which is toroidal field. So these loops appear on the sun, on the top, but because sun rotates not with the equal velocity in all latitudes, its equator rotates faster than poles, which means these loops which appear, they start being twisted. So the front part of equator, it moves quicker and the loop started twisting and getting around the sun. So it starts converting over the maximum toroidal field starts slowly converting back to the poloidal field. And this example shows you how the poloidal field of the sun acts. So if you forget about this uh, toroidal field, these loops, and explain how the magnetic field of the sun acts. So this was solar minimum, northern polarity, southern polarity, and you see no loops on the open, polarity, open magnetic fields. So this is what happened. Then these loops which are formed at the Tucker clan very deeply inside the sun, they travel, travel along the four or five years and they start appearing on the solar surface. But because sun rotates, this loop become twisting, they become uh, shifting, and this is what they form, kind of this structure, which is toroidal field. So this feel much stronger than this poloidal, but what it does, it actually makes these loops migrate and carry this magnetic field. Southern polarity carries to the north and northern carries to the south. This is how it's done. So now this magnetic field from the loops is converted to the poloidal field and it changes polarity. So when we came to the next minimum, okay. the sunspot are carrying this magnetic field and change the polarity, help to change the polarity because of this dynamo machine. Okay. So what this you're saying is there's a period where the magnetic fields are offsetting each other that creates yes. a lower magnetic field. And then there's, there's a point where they, they are working together 
to, to increase the magnetic field that uh, allows for sunspots to occur? Uh, yeah, the sunspots occur during the minimum. The, the only magnetic field of the sun allows to appear where, where the, these loops can pop up on the surface. Right. So because the right. sun has a, it, it is acting, um, its density is about water. It is, has quite a solid magnetic field. So its magnetic field allows in which place sunspot can appear and how they can move. Right. This is what yeah. it does. Okay. And yeah. because yeah. of this, what you see during the maximum the polarities are migrating, and in some years during maximum, your north and south pole could have the same polarity mm. because the, the polarities are shifting. They're migrating from south to the north and from north to the south because of these uh, loops, sunspots. They, they're helping to exchange mag uh, toroidal and poloidal magnetic field, and this is how it happened during the solar maximum. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So this is, um, I have somewhere nice video, which shows if we can stop for a second, I can find this video to show how it works. Do you wish me to show the video? Yeah, that'd be great. This is how minimum solar activity, then you get this magnetic field appeared and form, you see they're twisting around the equator and form loops. Right. And loops then form. So this how the loop are formed, this is because the toroidal magnetic field is twisted and they form these loops and sunspot occur there. This is how it happened. Wow. I can play it again if you wish. Yeah, that'd be great. This, this is really how cool. it looks like. <clears throat> so this is like when I'm watching the Science Network or whatever and I'm they're talking about the sun and they're talking about solar spots and coronal... Uh, Wow, that's really cool. Masses and stuff like yeah. that. Those that blue really, loops, really are, that that blue loop that I see on these, that's like the coronal mass ejections and all those different things that they're talking about, right? Okay. Yes, exactly. This okay. this when they happen when they come to the maximum, this we started from minimum and stopped at the maximum. At maximum, this you have everywhere these loops and they're producing all these ejections and everything, hmm. only because you have different differential rotations. So this is called so called. Alpha Omega Dynamo. So okay. one thing is that the loops are appeared somewhere deep in the sun, and when they're traveling, this called Alpha effect. And each depth, these loops are affected some different properties, buoyancy, the uh, magnetic um, permittivity, and so on. But also, this is Alpha effect and Omega effect. This is different differential rotation. So if your sun uh, is occurred at the latitude 30 degrees sun group and other, um, for example, here, and the other uh, part of the loop is a degree 25. So 25 will be try to move away further because sun rotates quicker. This is why it is shifting. This is why magnetic field is shifting because of omega effect. Mm. Okay. Okay. So now we produce these sunspots, so why do we care? Why do we care? Because um, when you produce the sunspots, uh, what you do, you have this increase of solar activity in the, around the sun, mm -hmm. like you look in here, backwards. 
So what we got, the sun become burning, become a huge fireball. It was quiet, nothing else, only this slight um, race along the equator. And suddenly it become a huge fireball. We have CMEs, we have um, increased uh, solar wind coming towards uh, us. We, we have um, explosion, eruption, and so on. And very often eruption can be angled towards the Earth, which produce strong geomagnetic storms and so on. Mm -hmm. So this is the energy which comes to us. And when the eruption reaches the Earth, what is happening basically, um, it penetrates through magnetic field of this Earth to the, to, towards the Earth. And uh, normally it penetrates from the poles. This is the easiest way for particles. But some very strong flares, they can actually make particles penetrate so deeply. Normally auroras, they cause aurora, these particles. And they happen in the northern latitudes, in Finland, and Arctic Circle. But in 1989, it was very powerful flare in, the, in March 1989, and the eruption of particles was so strong that the particles actually penetrated toward the province of Canada and destroyed power stations. So whole province of Quebec, Quebec province, was 24 hours without power because uh, solar particles destroyed power station. Oh, wow. And the similar, in 2003, we had a strong uh, flares, um, Halloween flares, about 10 in 2003 on the sun. And uh, the emission from these flares actually completely destroyed two Japanese satellites because mm. they, they didn't... So when the particle go, they just pass through the anything, they're very energetic, they need a speed of light, so nothing can protect them. So they go through the aerial, if the, normally a satellite has aerial to communicate with the Earth. If they didn't close the aerial when the particle come in, they literally, uh, like uh, with the good uh, Kalashnikov, the it stopped working because it's completely destroyed. Yeah. So these have two satellites disappeared. So this is why people, um, especially when we started the space era in 1970s, people realized that not sun is not so quiet guy sitting. It produces all this violent hard X-ray, gamma rays. It produces all this cosmic uh, solar energetic particles, and then. Um, it turned out that, oh, gosh, we need probably uh, have to have protection from the sun, or at least to know when to close our... We have very developed uh, satellite industry, and they want to know when to close these um, solar batteries so the, the particle can pass through and they open and work again, because after Japanese lost their satellites, this is where space weather become... Um, industry. People started interested in the prediction of flares, or at least um, they know when flare happen, they know how long take the particle to travel toward the Earth or where the satellites are. So the Earth, the uh, light travel eight minutes, but the particles, even the speed of close speed of light, 200,000 um, kilometers per second, it takes some time, minutes, 
30, 40 minutes, given the distance. So they, they have this uh, time to close, allow particle pass, and then open again. So this is why uh, it's too, too dual. We develop industry. It's not simply we develop in empty space. The space is ignores. Us. Is there is there a correlation between the the strength of the solar cycle and how many of these uh, strong flares you get, or or is it indiscriminate to that? Normally, it is. The stronger the cycle, the more powerful flares we have. Okay. So it, it is. Uh, so in a grand in a grand minimum, we should have less of these strong flare events. Correct. Yes. Yes. Uh, when we have. Grand minimum, we, we don't have flares at all, like it was grand, so um, during Mount, the minimum, they basically not only didn't have sunspot, it means if they don't have sunspot, they don't have any flares, right? any corona mass ejection. And turn out, it is not so bad thing for us, because when the sun stopped producing this emission, the Earth started freezing, yeah. because we are, turn out, we are warming up from this nice... Um, radiation which come from the sun from our central star yeah so the sun acts like a microwave well in, well. in essence right so it warm it's it's intense yeah. it's a, there's an intense moment where there's a ton of heat being put off and then when it goes away then that that energy goes away and therefore you get a, a, a cooling cycle of sorts yes what what it says we, we are so close I, again i don't have this slide I have in another presentation showing that, uh, again, I can find it for you, uh, that the sun is large star and the earth is tiny. So whatever comes from the sun, we always in the shine, in the shining lights of the sun and its magnetic field. So we do not actually appreciate how much sun gives to us, yeah. but it gives everything, all all energy resources, all fossil fuel, it's actually, it's the sun. It's conversion of this of solar energy into this fuel, oil, gas, everything. It came from bio, from, from, from transformation. What, what is an earth after its decay, it transformed in something else. So whatever we have, all energy come from, from the sun, so we have to appreciate it. We do. We appreciate the sun. Yeah, I do like okay. it. I dig it. So this, if we appreciate it, this would, um, as I said, before 2015, people mentioned Mount the Minimum, more or less, like, oh, it was a very difficult time. Yeah. But um, what was the problem? Despite we know this solar activity, like i shown here, it is very difficult to predict what will be the next cycle. So when we reach cycle 23 and people started predicting cycle 24, there were 150 predictions. And most of them saying the cycle 24 will be much stronger than the cycle 23. Right. Only a few of them, handful, about three or five saying the cycle will be lower, and they were ridiculed. When cycle 24 arrived, it turned out it became much weaker than cycle 23, which means that and the people could not understand what, why it is. And not speaking that they can predict cy cycle 
one cycle already started. Right. Not, I cannot predict now using this dynamo model. I can't predict what will be cycle 26 or 27. What cycle 25 started, they now produce prediction what cycle 25 will be. But they couldn't do this when we started cycle 24. So it's still difficult to predict solar activity with a little bit more than five years time scale. This is why we looked that sunspots have magnetic field. We look the magnetic field of the sun. This is the um, this poloidal magnetic field of the sun, background field of the sun. If you look at this field, blue is northern polarity and yellow is um, southern polarity. You can see that um, actually polarities of the background field and features follow these butterfly diagrams which we've seen in sunspots. Do you see that? So this mm -hmm. is not sunspot. This is background field, but you still see those butterfly cycle 21, then the butterfly next cycle 22, oh, okay. yeah. then butterfly cycle 23. This is happened in 2000, the, the guy built in 2005, this uh, diagram. And this gave some idea, okay, if they interlap toroidal and poloidal field by default, because of dynamo model, they should convert, transfer one to another. So who is the main guy? Where is this like a problem, egg and chicken? Who is the chicken and who is the egg? Right, yeah. The ground field yep. or magnetic field of these uh, magnetic loops. Mm -hmm. So this is what we, we did investigation in 2008. We compared statistical magnetic field, background field, which shown um, on the on the top, and the sunspot magnetic field shown on the bottom, because we uh, detected the sunspot magnetic field using uh, all modern techniques, digital techniques. Um, on so, so, Dr. Sokova, you can actually measure the magnetic field of the of the sun fairly accurately. I mean, you were yes. able to do that. Yes, now we have, sun is presented in a CCD camera with the pixels. Mm -hmm. And when you get these pixels, you can measure each uh, magnitude and how, how many of those pixels in each sunspot. And this is at the bottom shows you uh, sunspots. We, we measure sunspot in every single day. And then the whole 11-year cycle, and we've shown that this is the leading polarity. So we added the group, added all polarities, and now the leading polarity blue for sunspot in the northern hemisphere, and leading polarity southern in the southern hemisphere, which is opposite to the polarity of the background magnetic field. This is what we found. And we found some other things. We, we found that actually this poloidal field is like uh, has upper hand. It allows when the sunspot can appear and when then can, can migrate. So this is what we found. So your thesis was that, that you should have better predictive value focusing on this bigger data set from the magnetic field focus than on the more limited data set of just measuring the sunspot number. Exactly. Having this digitized all the data, this is done from the full disk magnetic field on the top and 
from the sunspot, we discovered that area covered by sunspot is very, very tiny, small, and we have little data. While when we get magnetic field, we get full set of pixels, 1024 by 1024. So we have much more data and much more reliable data because they're more accurate. And this was thought, if we can start using this data instead of sunspots, we might be better, have better prediction of the solar activity. The idea was to predict solar activity for 11 year cycle, a bit longer time scale. This is sure. why we decided to use background magnetic field. Okay, good. Okay. What we discovered when we look at this magnetic field, you look at this uh, map, if you look at the sunspot, it is more or less um, like straight line, northern polarity, blue part on the top and orange at the bottom. But when you look at the background magnetic field, you see this big um, blue incorporations. So it looks like this, um, um, whatever magnetic field is, it's very polluted. It has many different waves. This is what we look, we try to reproduce it. Many people tried, they reproduce how it behaves, but it was difficult to use this field for prediction. And this is came up, again, I'm a mathematician, and we look what the mathematical methods can debug for us this magnetic field. Like we had white light, we never knew that white light consists of different wavelengths until someone guessed put white light through the uh, uh, glass prism, and it turned out because of different diffraction law, suddenly white light became a rainbow. So you have from ultraviolet to the red. So, and each wavelength has a straight wavelength, which is nearly coherent wave. This is what prism is an ideal thing shown. Very complicated white light doesn't have wave wavelength. It is white light. But suddenly you have all these wavelengths. We wanted this wavelength. We didn't know how to get it. The only mathematical tool which can do it for us is principal component analysis. So you're saying that the mathematical equation in this case acted as the prism yes. to differentiate and, and split out what was going on with the magnetic field. Yes, exactly. We use covariance matrices and we try to uh, uh, classify or these uh, waves by the variance of data which contributes to them. Mm -hmm. okay. So basically what we did, we found how much data from the whole data set, from one uh, day disk or one month disk or magnetic field in one year and 11 year, how much they contribute towards um, this particular uh, vector. So we thought we will find one ma main principal component and we can say this is my major component and so on. We, we can see many. What we principal component allows you to split your components into put them into order, ranking order. Uh, highest variance, lower, lower and lower. So on the left hand side we put variance in percentage, and here will be eigenvalues or own wavelengths of the oscillations. So it turned out, this is what Sun shown us, we couldn't guess, that 
we don't have one principal component. The sun shown us two principal components. You see these two dots yeah, here. Right. Yep. Two dots. And because it had two dots, uh, together one is 20%, another is 18%, in total 38% of variance of the whole data contribute to this um, principal component. It means if you convert variance is um, square of standard deviation, if you get square root of this one, you get 67% of data uh, contributing to these two principal components. So you're saying is that if you can focus on those two principal components and reduce the rest of it, you can. That's how you're going to be able to predict the solar cycle going forward. Yeah, exactly. So we decided to get rid for time being for this other. These are later we discovered this principal component produced by, by dipole magnetic sources, north and south poles. Then you have quadruples produced quadruple sources, sextuple. Yeah. and so on. So we got rid of them for time being and decided let's concentrate on dipoles. Forget about others. Moreover, it is 67% by standard deviation. So it right. is pretty good distribution. If you look at any distribution, it's within plus minus one sigma. So yep. it's fine. So this is what we look at. Just to show you, we got cross correlation and this is what um, for dipole sources. You got dipole sources. We just... We just got them, and this in paper 2012, we got here the quadruple sources, the sextuple and octuple. So we got them when you do cross-correlation with them. So this is the net result here of focusing on the main components and yeah. how, we, how you to predict future solar cycles. Yeah, we didn't predict. Look only for the result on the left-hand side before this dashed line. So. Okay. We didn't have it for time being. What we got, this blue and that line up to the year 2000, uh, 2005, I think, 2006. So what we discovered that these two principal components, which we have, they actually follow very strict rules. These are magnetic waves. So these are magnetic field, right? So we assume these are magnetic waves, like um, in white light, one of them higher energy and the lower right. that matter. But they are, during the minimum, if you look at that, the waves start, both waves start, one starts in southern hemisphere somewhere in the 45 degree, another starts in the northern hemisphere. Both they move to the southern hemisphere and they meet, the amplitudes are close and they interact because they the more, both in the southern hemisphere, they interact and produce maximum of solar activity. Then they move further. They move, uh, the, the one which moved from the south moved to north and stays in the north, and the one which moved from the north moves to south. And then they put in the minimum when the waves are in opposite hemispheres, no activity. So what we discovered, for solar activity, we need these two waves to on meet. The same, to yeah. meet. On the same hemisphere. On, on yeah. the same hemisphere, right. Yeah, and they when they're on the opposite hemisphere, they kind of cancel each other out and the sunspots are not able to form. Right. Yes. And this is what's happening. This is minimum. And then they meet in the southern hemisphere. And normally this hemisphere where they meet, it becomes more active. They, okay. It's been 
notified by many scientists that one hemisphere always more active than other one and always uh, southern active in uh, even cycles and northern is active in odd cycles so this is what we understood aha uh -huh. we this is what happened moreover in some cycles when you get um, uh, if you have two maxima here the maximum nearly coincide but sometimes this maxima like in this one can be separated some cycle have double maximum so called Gnevyshev law so it explains you why you have double maximum because they interfere here but they still have another wave has maximum in that did you take were you did you take this data and go further backwards to see if it's still verified uh, uh, backwards so Sean just asked a question there and that question will be answered in part two of the Dr. Valentina Zarkova interview with myself and Sean Hackett um, Good information coming up. This is the kind of the transition point now where we start looking at more what the grand solar minimums mean, how they interact with Earth's climate, and, and all those kind of things. So uh, the second one is going to be chock full with some really great information. Like I said earlier, make sure you go to, the, to my, to my uh, YouTube channel, and you'll be able to see the video of this with her slides and those kind of things. So make sure you check out that. at That's the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Also, check out me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you're going to find all the latest editions of the Moving Iron podcast and blog posts from the Moving Iron blog. If you want to learn more about the Moving Iron podcast and their contributors, check out the Moving Iron podcast tab on my website at movingironllc.com. This is where you can find uh, all the market people and all the podcast contributors, who what they look like, and, and uh, as well as uh, their bios. On the website, you can find information that you'll need for the Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee, coming up in September 15th through the 17th. If you're a dealer of any kind and would like to attend, please take a look at the agenda and the speakers for this event. Uh, you won't want to miss this. Lots of good information that comes out of this. Also a great networking opportunity for you and your dealership. If you have any questions, you can send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. Rich Pawson has a great podcast called Critical Point Podcast. It's all about the economy and what's happening in the market, so make sure you check that out. He's got a subscription-based uh, side of that, too. That'll give you some more information other than what's out there on the on the uh, free side of the stuff. So Rich has got a, a wealth of information, and he's got a lot of stuff that, that he points out to people, um, especially about the market and what he sees happening there. So you can find Rich on Twitter at Rich underscore Possum. That's Rich underscore P-O-S-S-O-N, Rich Possum. Lastly, listen to the Dryline Farmer podcast. Brent and Landon will keep you uh, entertained on your travels, and uh, they will uh, absolutely make you laugh. So until next time, I'm Casey Seymour with Dr. Valentina Zarkova and Sean Hackett. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. You want to have a meaningful, competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The roots of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. To find more or become an Axon dealer, head over to axontire.com. In the 21st century Hard-working people Working hard for you and me 
Mu!